1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
2: Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. Today, I sit down with Dr. Edward Lopez-Jones. He is a physician and scientist with 25 years clinical experience in internal medicine and infectious diseases. He has taken some time from his busy schedule today to speak with us about the COVID-19 virus. I get to ask him about all the scientific facts of this virus that I can think of and what we can do about it. But most importantly... Can I Still Go to the Gym? Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Just to know who, what your specialty is, you work in infectious disease.
3: Um, yes, exactly. So I'm a specialist in infectious diseases. I just happen to be also an epidemiologist by training. I work at uh, Keck School of Medicine at USC, uh, and I see patients in two hospitals, Keck hospital in uh, LA County, which is the public hospital. You know, the the system there works has several hospitals. Those are the two main ones where I work.
2: And okay, obviously, I don't even think it's the elephant in the room. We are going through kind of a national crisis right now with COVID-19, coronavirus, Mm -hmm. which... You know, for me, it's something I've just heard of, coronavirus. But if you look on the back of a Lysol can, it says it will kill coronavirus. So people knew about coronavirus, but I guess this is just a new strain of coronavirus?
3: Exactly. So uh, coronaviruses is a family of viruses that are mostly, they mostly live in animals, different types of animals. And once they jump from animals to humans, then it depends on how new it is, how virulent it is, how it's transmitted how much inflammation it causes in humans and so on, it becomes more or less relevant. Uh, This is a very new, a brand new version of a a coronavirus, which has caused already several, maybe not pandemics like this one, but epidemics, meaning large numbers of cases that were largely restrained to certain countries. Um, They typically start in China, in the Asian area of the world, Not only, not exclusively, but that's where most of the coronaviruses in the last 20 years, 30 years have started. There was another very important coronavirus called MERS, the Middle East Respiratory um, Virus. And that started in um, uh, Saudi Arabia. But it has a very similar type of virus. picture, you know, it's it's also a coronavirus, no? Um, now, those are the ones that are the more dangerous one, the more, because of their new genetic materials, we don't have any immunity against them, we don't have any vaccines, we don't have any treatments, and frankly, um, we don't really know how they transmit or the proportion of cases that become infected, that become serious cases, et cetera, et cetera. It's really the big questions, no? Um, now, there are many other coronaviruses that are not these epidemic variants that have been circulating around us for decades, maybe even more than that. Uh, and those are the ones I think that these products refer to. Right.
2: Okay. I have so many questions. I want to really formulate them well. When we look at the stats of, like, the, the, the mortality rate, when we look yep. at 100,000 confirmed cases, approximately— 4,000 deaths approximately, that's approximately 4%. 4% is a very big number when you compare it to something like the common flu, which has a mortality rate of, I think, 0.1 or something like that, which is, and still we have 40,000 people approximately every year in America die from the common flu.
3: Exactly.
2: My hope, and I don't know, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously we want confirmation bias, but my hope is when we see 100,000 confirmed cases and 4,000 deaths, is the number really of cases much, much, much larger so that that percentage is much, much, much smaller? So a lot of questions in
3: that question. sorry. A lot of parts (laughs) to it. Yes. So obviously you're talking about global numbers, 100,000, there are actually now 140,000 numbers. Um, that is uh, worldwide um and probably it does underestimate not probably m- much more like it's very likely that the real number of cases is much larger it's, it's they're still not uh, detected one two the growth of this virus is exponential it, obviously it's it's clear to us to us all now. Um, but if you look at the numbers, and just in the last two and a half months, the first few cases that were reported in China—just this was in November. This is what three and a half months ago—and now, basically, you know, in the U.S. and many other countries, national emergencies have been declared. So this um, disease has uh, traveled very, very quickly, and this is exactly. What is of concern to scientists, and we have many, many of us have been talking about this next pandemic uh, coming. And um, so it's not completely unexpected. The only thing that is somewhat unexpected is that this is a coronavirus. The pandemic we were expecting is for uh, flu to become pandemic. The H1N1 scare in 2009 was, for a moment, a very scary situation. And the scary component of it is exactly because it can create very, very rapidly hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cases, probably tens of millions of cases. Yeah? So that's the overall framing of it. Now, in terms of the mortality, you're correct. The flu is a disease that we know pretty well. There are important differences between the flu and the coronavirus. One is we know it very well because it's been around us and it kills, as you say, just in the U.S., on average, 50,000 per year. You know, some years it kills 30,000, sometimes higher than that, 70,000. And that really depends on a, a series of factors, mostly around, you know, if the virus is more or less virulent that year, you know. It's also also it's also about, you know, how many people use a vaccine that year, how many people end up in the hospital and being treated. There's a treatment for it also, which is a big difference with the coronavirus, you know? So it's a series of factors that end up with a particular number of deaths or not. There's many other people who do not die from influenza and are very, very sick. And that's another very large number sometimes, you know. So in absolute numbers, the influenza virus is indeed a much more dangerous virus based on what we've seen in the past. The enormous concern with this particular virus is that, and again, the data is moving very quickly, but based on the numbers we have right now, your rough estimate of around 4%, is not quite there, but it's almost there. The numbers we have is about 2 to 3% mortality. The, when you go from there up, go that, ahead. that takes into account
2: undiagnosed cases.
3: No. So that's that's just looking at the denominator and the numerator of... Of again, what we know. Of what we know. Oh,
2: with with the flu, because I've had the flu a number of times. Mm-hmm. I've never once been tested for the flu. Okay. I just had all the symptoms and assumed I had the flu and had a fever for a few days during flu season. When you look at the stats on the flu... Are the numbers all confirmed
3: cases? Yes. Basically, those are confirmed cases. And and your point is a very good one, and it takes us into another discussion. You know, you assume you have the flu. Based on the symptoms, but uh, there's a slew of uh, viral pathogens, viruses, but others, but we're talking about viruses right now that can give you identical symptoms. It's very, very, if not impossible to separate one particular virus from the next one from the next one. And there's really dozens of different viruses that can give you very, very similar symptoms. Uh, Typically, people aggregate those under the common cold And then the distinguishing virus from that family is the influenza. And now another one that is being distinguished is the coronavirus. But they all have very similar presentations. So the only way to really be sure if you have one or the other, and actually within each one, there's several types. You know, influenza, for example, has A and B, you know. Right. And sometimes it's very important to know if it's A or B, you know. And within each large type A and B there's then subtypes you know that's what the H1N1 refers to it's that's the way we classify those particular viruses yeah so there's a slew of factors that come into play but going back to the mortality issue so the the flu in general we're talking general things uh, numbers the mortality rate is estimated at 0.1 which is exactly what you said the mortality rate for the, this coronavirus is about two to three percent. That's 20 times higher. Yeah, you know, it's ten, a lot more. 10 to 20 times higher. And that is the concern. The the, the main concern of this virus is two things, twofold. One is that the fact that three things. One is it's being transmitted very, very efficiently, you know, based on the numbers throughout the world. Number two, the mortality rate seems to be higher than the flu and, and potentially. Uh, quite significant numbers, as you say. A lot of people don't recognize that 2% mortality is actually very, very high. It's really high. It it doesn't matter so much if you only have 10 cases, but if you have millions, 2% of millions, that's a lot of people. And then the last characteristic is really the southernness of it. And that's what really is right now the focus of this in other countries to try and what we are calling now Flatten the curve. What that refers to, and you may have seen this in TV, is the concerning thing, and this is true from two observations, one in China and then now in, in a much more dramatic way in, I, in Italy, is the sheer number of cases that occur in a very relatively short time, and many of these cases being a very significantly, you know, severe cases, Where does severity occur? Typically in two populations, older patients and people who have other uh, health issues, typically lung-based health issues, but it can be other things, you know, diabetes and taking uh, medications that lower their immunity, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, even the issue of the age association with mortality is more related to older people accumulate more frequently than not, more diseases. So even someone who's relatively young uh, who has a lot of health issues can become very sick and unfortunately die from it. You know? But the, so the third thing, and in, 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 that's really what the emergency is, and it's a global emergency now, is the sheer number of cases that can present in a very relatively short time, in a few days or even in a few weeks. And that really has the potential to overwhelm the whole thing, meaning, you know, you have tens of thousands or a hundred thousands, even if a small proportion of those cases become very ill and they come to the hospitals and we don't have enough beds, no, not, not enough respirators, etc. plus all the other, you know, uh, patients that require care in the hospital. You know? So that's really the urgency of it. It's trying to, if you have that same number, whatever that number is, ends up being, and in each country it's going to be different. In some countries, it's going to be twenty thousand; in others, a hundred thousand; in others, you know, millions of cases. If you can, uh, like, distribute those cases over a six-month period, for example, that would be, you know, obviously much better—not good, but much better than if you have a million cases, the same million cases in one month. Right. right. Just from an
2: infrastructure standpoint.
3: Just in uh, in terms of yeah, hands on the ground, you know, and right. uh, beds. Beds, respirators, the whole thing. You know, it's uh, how to, you know, because obviously you have to care of these patients. You have protective equipment, you know, masks, etc. It's 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 an entire infrastructure around very ill people. In essence.
2: let me just ask this, just out of almost selfishness. You yeah. you you talked about flu types A and B. Yes. Is there any part of like, I, I understand these are completely different things, but like if somebody had flu type A or type B, do those immunities from having that protect against this at all? No. Is there So there's nothing right now, that a person could have had that protects against
3: Unfortunately this. not. And that's, you know, obviously there's, the more you ask, the more elements there are of concern. That's one of them. That's another one. These viruses, there's a lot of uh, cross-immunity, it's called, um, between viruses within a same family. So, and that's really the rationale behind um, flu vaccines, for example. It's really a guessing game. I don't know if you've know about this, but... And that's why a lot of people associate the vaccine of the flu as being either causing symptoms, the vaccine itself, or not working, which is a uh, mischaracterization of what it is. Basically, it's we measure what viruses... Typically, what is done is you measure the viruses that are circulating, for example, this year, and it's now about... And then, just remind me of bringing up another issue from the coronavirus that's very important... But uh, we measure which viruses circulated this year. The flu season starts around October, November, and then finishes towards, you know, the month of May or so. So during those six, seven months, there's a certain number of viruses that circulate. And you use that information to design the vaccine, that plus some model, mathematical models and, and, you know, a lot of other uh, so like. Uh, in vitro or uh, in silico work, which is sort of like computational work, you try and model or predict which are the viruses that are going to circulate the next year, and then you do that again and again and every year. So, and sometimes that guessing game is very good. And the efficacy of the vaccine is very, very, very high, close to seventy percent, eighty percent, sometimes ninety percent. Sometimes that modeling exercise is is not good, <laughs> and the result is that the vaccine is very, very inefficient for that particular year. Right. And we don't really control what factors what makes this particular virus circulate versus the next one or so on. It's it's really a guessing game, yeah. And however, if you look at the studies with people who have been vaccinated versus those who have not been vaccinated, you have a very clear separation if you inject people with the virus versus injecting them with water, for example, the placebo, you know, the famous placebo, you see differences in deaths that are, you know, there's no doubt that it has a tremendous protective effect. And that's why us doctors recommend the vaccine particularly for the most vulnerable populations. And in the case of the flu, it's, it's, it's the two extremes of age. So older patients, for the same reasons, the coronavirus is, is dangerous for them. Same thing for the flu. And in the flu, in the case of the flu, children also, which the corona, this particular coronavirus seems to have spared for some reason, and we don't really understand why. Right. Do you think as we go along, we'll, that'll be a question that gets answered? You mean that for children? Yeah, and that's actually uh, potentially a scientific clue that is of enormous interest. The fact that children, for whatever reason, seem not to become that ill uh, with this particular virus, and that's probably something in their immunity that is something. That the inter it's. In, in infectious diseases, it's always an interaction between the bug itself and the particular immunity of one or more people. Huh? And that interaction is favorable in this case. And that's basically at this point what we can say. And so, but
2: the, is, that a, is that kind of like, listen, I don't know anything. Yes. But i go like, is that a clue? Like if we're looking for a mystery, if it's a mystery book, is that a clue that helps it's find po- a...
3: It's potentially a clue. Right. Now we need to understand what it means. Right. And what is exactly go- going on with children that are not getting that sick with it. I don't want to say that children are out of... You know sure uh danger, but right now, and again, this is an epidemic that has moved so so fast that the data is is just quickly accumulating, but there 's a lot of things we don 't know yet um, this is an observation mainly from China, and again that 's where most of the research has been the published research has been coming from just because of the sheer number of cases they 've had and because they have very well trained now very well trained scientists and so on, and they 've been able to to publish some very important papers already in, in just three months, which is like incredible, you know?
2: Yeah. You said remind me about another very interesting point.
3: Yeah. So an important point about the coronavirus is in that um so there's a concept called herd immunity. Um and that's a very important thing in vaccine uh, in vaccinations, because it's basically Uh, It's this concept of if you have enough people who are either immune, naturally immune, or immune through vaccination, that majority, typically there's a threshold for that, for diseases and populations, but it's around 90%, roughly speaking. Um, That 10% that are not vaccinated or immune are protected because the probability of them becoming exposed to the particular bug it becomes close to zero, you know. But once that herd immunity is not at 90% or 85 or 80% for each bug, um, those 20% or 10% are at um, risk of becoming infected and developing whatever that disease is, you know. In some places, vaccination rates or, or immunity rates are as low as 50%, you know? So... They're incredibly low, and and it's very, very potentially uh, like you know disasters waiting to happen, in essence, and that's basically what's happening with this coronavirus. There is no cross immunity. Why? Because it's a very new virus, and it's in essence an entire population of people. And we're talking. The global, the global population of the world, who are exposed to this very new virus without any collective immunity to to uh, defend ourselves against no? them, right. and that's why it's part of the equation about why it's so potentially why so um, you know dangerous in terms of mortality.
2: And with something like MERS, that that was the last bad one that you mentioned, yes. right? Was that just that it was harder to transmit?
3: Yes, exactly. So each one and before MERS there was another one that was called SARS. Right. Yeah. You know, in this virus there's some confusion about the nomenclature or things. The virus itself, the new virus is called SARS-CoV-2, um, in essence. It's the SARS version, but it's now num- number two. The disease itself is now called COVID-19, you know? So you have to separate the virus itself from the disease. So the first SARS that I believe was in 2003 or so, uh, and then MERS, uh, actually, interestingly enough, MERS, for example, the mortality rate of MERS was much, much higher, you know? But for some reason, uh, it was, in essence, contained, probably a combination of factors. Uh, There's also a lot of luck involved in all these things. But probably the transmissibility of the virus was reduced, uh, was not so high. Uh, It was in an area where, you know, uh, it started in in the Arabian Peninsula— where the number of people per square or whatever, kilometer or mile is not such, you know, so if you compare that to China, for example, where they have more than a billion people, you know, and in these cities where, you know, there's millions or tens of millions of people living in very, very closed quarters. You know? So it's a completely different epidemiological scenario. You know? So it's Probably a combination of multiple factors um, that explains the differences between those those viruses and these in this one.
2: I also suddenly think about this question just occurred to me, and I hope it's not a, an inappropriate question. But I go like, so much of the goods we use come from China, mm-hmm. but it can't survive a transoceanic flight in a object, can it?
3: Mm, I mean, those are obvious good questions. It's unlikely. right? It's unlikely. But again, there's a lot of doubt still in terms of the survivability of the virus on surfaces and things like that, which is related to what you're saying.
2: Yeah, it's usually in a living host and then transmitted from host to host.
3: For practical purposes, that's what is really very, very um, the case. You know, The enormous majority of cases that are being transmitted through respiratory secretions. There's three levels of transmission through the air, and two of them are droplets, large droplets, you know, small droplets, and then the, what is called airborne transmission, which is through aerosols. So their particles are small enough that they're, in essence, suspended in the air, and then you inhale them when you breathe, you know. Um, so there's probably a little of the three levels of transmission. Probably most of it is large and small droplets. Similar, really, very similar to the flu. You know? Right. So it's uh, the typical precautions that we all know of with the flu: of sneezing, you know, against your arm, and you know, using a mask if possible, and washing your hands, not touching your face. All those are the exact same things that we've recommended for decades for the flu. You know?
2: Right. Not you know? touching your face is this. This is completely n- new for me. Oh, my God, you touch your face thousands of times a day, and I'd never thought of that. And now I am just constantly telling myself not to touch my face until yes. I've washed my hands.
3: Yes, I mean, and in, in again, in everything, in these recommendations, a lot of them are based on common sense, right. more than <laughs> yeah. you know, data. Um, and it's just a good... Um, thing to recommend right now, particularly in the middle of these situations. Now, now, how much of the virus is being transmitted through those very actions? You know, it's very difficult to know.
2: Right. You guys don't actually, do you ever find out exactly how yes. somebody caught it?
3: Yes. Okay. Um, oh, exactly how they like caught it? Like whether no. they inhaled no, 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 no. it or they rubbed no, their no, eye? No, that's very, first of all, it's irrelevant. Right. And two, it would be very difficult to know. Yeah. What is very important to know and there's a lot of research around it, is exactly in what way is it transmitted. Yeah. Know? Because these recommendations we're just discussing are a direct uh, result of those, that research, you know? Yeah. So, um, but in general, there's really no reason to believe it's going to be different to any other respiratory virus, meaning it's mostly going to be transmitted through the air, through droplets, and some surfaces, probably. And that um, is sort of like the main recommendation right now. And so if if we're, if we're thinking about,
2: so I, I, I hear through the air and I just think about crowds or like proximity to people standing in line to get coffee. You're maybe close enough that <laughs> if somebody breathes some liquid out of their mouth, it could get on you. But, but like walking down the street, if you're
3: yeah, we don't need to be afraid to do that, do we? No, no. So there's again. So that's the part where you need some common sense to put it into the mix. Um, it's not about being close to someone um, and just getting the, the infection. It's really about having someone who's who has the infection and who's symptomatic, who's having symptoms. You know, they're sneezing, coughing, you know, or just shedding the virus. These th- these are the that's where the transmission based on surfaces on mucosa can happen. Someone who, for example, for whatever reason, is containing a sneeze or a cough, but they have the virus that is very actively replicating in their mucosal surfaces, and then they touch themselves, and then they touch a table or touch somewhere else or touch somebody's hand, and it can obviously be transmitted through that. But that's, again, that's, that's less likely than and if someone does not, Follow the basic recommendations of, not, for example, not sneezing. If I had coronavirus and I would sneeze, and you know, and just sneeze in the air, it's very likely that both of you will be at least exposed. Will right. you be infected? I don't know, but at least exposed to the virus, you know? right? And that's uh, obviously of much more concern. Huh? Uh, and and you don't really have to do anything. Just be close to me and just breathe, in essence. For the other way to transmit, you need a series of factors to happen at the same time. You need to, I need to be able to, because that's a very important issue. As a person who's never been exposed, what you want to be aware of is people who are sick around you, in essence. And this is something that a lot of people know from from planes already. You know, if you're close to someone in a plane and they're sick, you automatically know it, you know. Mm And it ha- it, I don't know about you guys, but it's happened to me many times, you know. They're coughing, their lungs out, and, yeah. and you never really know what they have. You and know? you got nowhere to go. And you have nowhere to go, exactly. So it's more about this awareness of being, you know, people. And that's where the recommendation right now, which makes all the sense in the world, is if you're sick and you have it, if you know you have it, stay at home. You know, that's, that's the only way to really interrupt transmission, you know. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
2: I think in my head, if I was in charge, i just say everybody stays home for two weeks. Whoever develops symptoms, they're not going to be giving it to other people. And, you know, at the end of two weeks... We can handle those sick people and quarantine them for real until Mm -hmm. it's over. But that also doesn't seem super realistic because people have to eat. They need medicine. People are going to have other reasons to go to the doctor. Yes. Is that something you would want to happen? Like and I'm just saying like that's my common sense if everybody yeah. stayed home. But then also the whole the whole country
3: stops, yeah. which is not good. So so the reason I, I studied infectious disease is precisely because of this. Infectious disease has a very interesting and rich um, side to things. There's the patient level you know, individual issues related to the disease itself. Does it cause the disease? Yes or no. How do you treat it? How do you diagnose it? It has two other levels. One is, the next one is the epidemiological level, the public health level. A lot of infectious diseases have this element of being transmitted from one place, one person to another, you No, know? And there's a lot of science around that. We just discussed some of it. But there's an, yet another level, which is really the societal slash philosophical slash you know, um, ethical one that is sometimes very complicated. What you're talking about is, in essence, what they did in China. China just went through uh, the largest quarantines in the history of humankind. They quarantined around 100 million people. And in China, they can do it, and they do it in a very deterministic way. (laughs) And the results from that seem to indicate that, yes, they were successful in interrupting something that was, you know, completely out of control. The latest numbers of new infections in China seem to have dropped tremendously. It's difficult to understand the data sometimes from countries like China, but, you know, they've been pretty forthcoming with the data, so there's really no reason to believe that these data are manipulated in any way at this point. So it's probably true that, you know, from having thousands, if not tens of thousands of cases per day or per week, now they've dropped tremendously. So in theory, yes, basically what you want to do is if the world could organize, you know, in a world, six billion people, we could organize and stay away from each other for two weeks, as you say, <laughs> boom, the virus disappears instantly. Right. right. The people who are sick get sick, get treated, but they're not passing. Exactly, it on. exactly. You know, it's always useful to think of these things, or at least in my research, that's how I think of, you have to think of what the what's in the interest of, if you were the virus, what would you want to do to yeah. survive, you know? And what you want to do is to recruit other hosts. I want concerts every <laughs> night. <laughs> exactly. With sweating people. and Exactly. Know. So that's the way. I would survive, and I'm I'm in one host, and I want to maintain my my genealogy. <laughs> I want to transmit to as many people as possible. You know? Right. So if you separate people, you you in essence avoid that and that in that virus. Once he he or she <laughs> would kill the patient, or
2: not. But that's it. So since that. Doesn't seem to be happening, or maybe it is because the, all the grocery stores here in Los Angeles are all empty. So maybe people are preparing to stay home for two weeks. That's possible. I don't know. From the standpoint of an individual, if mm-hmm. if I go, I'm going to stay home for two weeks, it doesn't really do anything unless everybody else makes the same decision.
3: No, it does. Uh, cumulatively speaking, it does. Okay. Um, obviously, nothing is perfect. But um, the number of cases in the U.S. right now stands, known cases, around 2,000. You know? There's probably a, many, many more. Uh, and there's probably in the next few weeks many more that are going to be diagnosed. Um, but it's whatever that number is. And it's probably not in the, as hope at least, it's not in the millions. It's probably not in the hundreds of thousands, uh, Hopefully. But it's probably in the tens of thousands at this point. Um, so, tens of thousands, let's say hundreds of thousands. That's a very small proportion of people who need to be or be self aware of quarantine. You know, um, what is it? Whatever it is, you know, one percent, two percent, not even. You know? So even if you have twenty percent of the population, and maybe not. It, that twenty percent does not include perfectly include those one hundred thousand or whatever number. That's that's a big big effect already. Not to mention if fifty percent or sixty percent of the population, if you go through the streets these days, you know, you can clearly see. It took me half an hour to come from USA today. Yeah, with rain. <laughs> right. So just that, you know, is 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 an indication of people are taking this very very seriously. Yeah, that's
2: uh, that means a lot of people are not out there.
3: A, a lot of people are not out there and there's a reason for it and there's, right. you know this today it was a declaration of national emergency, etc. So there's it's uh, there's an increscendo tempo to this and it's a lot of people are are understanding that this is this is no joke.
0: Yeah. Know? Yeah, this is definitely something different than I feel like I remember uh, in my lifetime in terms of people's reaction,
3: yes.
0: kids staying home from school and large concerts being canceled and so on. Like, I don't remember this type of reaction.
3: No, this is, this is unique, uh, obviously. And this is exactly what the models have predicted for this pandemic flu that we've been waiting for uh, in this last century. There were four big flus. The, the famous one is the 1918 one, the yeah. Spanish flu, that killed about 60, 20 million people throughout the world. And then there was three others, the last one being in 57, I believe it was. And if you look at the each one of them, they're separated roughly by 30 years, each one, you know, in 1957. Actually, but by you know, the way,
2: this is mm-hmm. an important part of that stat. Mm-hmm. It killed 60 million people. When there were only a billion people on yeah. Earth,
3: no, that was a, a very, very a, that's right. a
2: huge port. There weren't the cities were not, yes. you know, there weren't thirty million people in the greater Los Angeles area in nineteen whatever eighteen.
3: Yeah, no, but that, there's another part to that. The the, the the sanitation, the public health systems were much, right. you know, worse. There were no treatments. There were no ventilators. There's a lot of other parts that are we now have. Right. You know? uh, so it's a difficult number to put in context, but the fact of the matter, and we do have evidence that that particular virus was particularly virulent uh, for some reason. We have, um, we were able, we've made some very interesting studies where they were able to isolate the, the genetic material of the virus itself that was preserved in, in, um, I think in mommies or whatever. And, um, and they've been able to um recapitulate that virus and it's it was a very very virulent virus you know what we do to measure how how much inflammation it causes and so on and it was a particularly virulent virus so right. it was clearly the virus was largely responsible for it but it was many other things also
2: yeah and there there were towns that quarantined very quickly yes and it did not hit as hard there
3: that's exactly what's happening with this one. I don't know if you've seen the the images or the the graphs that are being generated. Um, a center of uh, of excellence uh, looking at this epidemic and a reference uh, is Johns Hopkins, and they have a very interesting graph where they look at the rate of uh, increase in the number of cases in all of the Western societies are following the same, almost the exact same path upward. And there's two countries that are completely flattened, that have been able to flatten the epidemic. It's Singapore and Hong Kong. or two countries. I mean, Hong Kong is no longer an independent country, but uh, those two, um, you know, systems were able to flatten the epidemic and they separate completely from, in essence, all the other countries on the list. What you know? did they do? They did exactly this. They They... They they recognized the issue and they very quickly um, put in place uh, um, things that, in essence, separated two things. Um, What you need to do quickly is to separate people, you know, again, and two is understand how much how much um, how many cases do you have already in your population? Okay epidemics are are pretty there's a lot of science around epidemics and things, what to do at what time at what stage of the epidemic it's it's not an area of controversy, you more or less know what you need to do
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot
3: And and one of the early things you need to understand is how many cases are there around you. Because if there's now too many cases, you know, what is called now tr- uh, community transmission, where the transmission of the virus is occurring without really any link to a high-risk uh, high situation, in this case travel, for example. Early on, it was travel to China, and then it was other countries that were added to that list. And if you didn't have that history, of being uh, returning traveler or, or in contact with someone who has returned, then, you know, they would not test, you know. But then the Seattle epidemic that we now see basically demonstrated that, you know, the virus has been, was introduced to this country sometime, probably sometime in December, you know, uh, very shortly after it started in China. And it started circulating uh, out there without, our knowledge and now that we're testing and now that it's becoming much more clear that it's been around us it's probably no longer something that is related to travel Really, it's it's really now homegrown and we need to be able to control it here right Right.
2: so again selfishly because i'm a human being and we are selfish should i not go to the gym for two weeks that's really that's the thing i get most stressed out about
3: Again, that that I think falls in the common sense type of things you need to decide. Um, you know, the gym has potentially two things. One, uh, large, a relatively large number of people. And number two, the, this issue of the surface transmission, you yeah? know? It's really more of a personal type of approach. (laughs)
2: Well, let me just say, the gym has been empty the last few days. Exactly. And I do wipe down everything before I touch it. Yes. But I don't want to be thought of as like uh, putting—I don't want to be thought of as like that guy who's not— do, like I'm on here saying, we should all self quarantine for two weeks, but not me.
3: I'm going to go to the gym.
0: But but aren't we saying? Correct me if I'm wrong. That we should self quarantine if we feel sick. Exactly. I mean that's so, the
3: that's the that's the more that's the recommendation that makes more sense. No? Right. Um, in theory, that 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 that's obvious. Now, <laughs> if yeah. you feel sick, particularly if you feel sick and uh, and you've been tested and you're positive, that would be almost irresponsible. Um, now feeling sick, just sick without really having something of a flu-like syndrome, uh, you know, that's a little more debatable. Uh, obviously that that sorry, uh, that that you, you you have to say, okay, yeah. You know, maybe just in case, or you want to test it, or I don't want to do a test, but I don't feel sick enough to go to the hospital. Let me just stay home just in case, you know. Right. But then there's the level of not being sick, you know, which is, I think, what you're bringing up. And should I self-quarantine, even if I don't have any symptoms? And that's really more of a personal choice, you know. I would there's this concept now of reverse quarantine to patients or populations that are at very high risk of if they acquire the infection of dying, for example, people in nursing homes. The request right now is, you know, do not quarantine them, but in essence avoid visits. Mm. Yeah. You know. Wait, do not quarantine them? But so we're, we're, the quarantine is someone, typically someone who's sick, who's quarantined. Right. This is reverse quarantine, meaning these are large populations or not even large, just nursing homes or places where there's a lot of older people who are very susceptible to a virus. The idea is do not reduce the number of visits to right. that place. Right. They're not necessarily sick. Yeah. Yeah. So you're they're not... Being not quarantined. quarantined I get it. But you're in essence avoiding any contacts or minimizing the number of contacts with them. I would think anybody
2: right now as you said, the streets are pretty quiet. I it feels like people are doing that.
3: Yes. And and, and, and that's another interesting philosophical issue that I've been talking to people. You know, there's certain countries that follow these instructions better than others. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of jokes around, you know, maybe Italians not having done, you know, these things <laughs> yes. that because you know, Latins tend to be more, you know, I'm Latin, and we tend to be more, you know, it will pass, and you know, my 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 good time after work is is critical to my survival, sure, there, <laughs> and so on. So um, I mean, it's not, uh, it's impossible to know, but it's it's. Feasible. it's possible that certain countries have less a tendency or certain populations have a tendency to be less compliant with these recommendations right?
2: I feel like Los Angeles because we're all in cars all the time I know people still do a lot of very public things the grove the the americana uh, movies concerts amusement yep. parks all those things I the the basketball games like I completely understand those things saying, we're going to take a break, we're not going to do this, we're not going to have large public gatherings, but we're already kind of set up to be on our own, in our cars. I would think it would be harder in places like New York where they do depend on public transportation so much.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, The public transportation, remember, we are in cars in between places, right? but ultimately we start with a crowded place and we potentially end up in a crowded place. In New York, in other places where there's a lot more, you know, collective movement, there's not that interruption in terms of crowdedness. But, you know, at the end of the day, you don't really... You just need five minutes or three minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes of being in a crowded place with a single patient who has... Or more than one person who has symptoms to right. perpetuate things. No? Yeah. And I just remember the other issue that I, I said was important for coronavirus. Another big doubt and another distinguishing feature with influenza is influenza typically uh, wanes in the summer months and and that's why it's one of the things we know very well the typical caseload is in those six seven months of the winter and then starting about now march april may probably may is more secure um it starts waning And during four and there's there's an interruption at least, you know. It's interesting because the north has its influenza transmission uh, period during the winter months of the north, and then the southern hemisphere has their influenza transmission period during their winter. So the bug itself is constantly transmitting either in the winter, the north winter or the south winter, because they're inverted. Uh we don't know if this coronavirus is going to be similar to the flu in terms of waning by itself. Is that heat? Is this a So heat? it's very interesting. It's it's probably yes, it has to do probably obviously something with the weather itself, yeah. You know? Um but it's it's one of those big things that are very obvious and known for centuries probably. You don't you don't really know exactly what it is. You, you know? just know it follows that pattern, but it you... follows that pattern in a very in a very reliable way, actually, and right. that's that's what allows it allows a lot of interventions around that very relatively simple fact. And this coronavirus is is not clear that's going to happen, and that's very concerning, obviously, because if this this wave of transmission is sustained through the summer months that's going to be very difficult right but if
2: there is this kind of self sabbatical where people remove themselves from public gatherings and we and we can flatline it like hong kong and singapore did yes there's got to be a shot that we don't have the the real breakdown where hospitals are overcrowded and people are dying in the streets right
3: yeah so there's two part there's two concepts that are very similar one is the flatlining of the curve and that refers really to if you think of it of uh, a very large number of cases increasing very ra- rapidly and then decreasing very rapidly the flatlining of the curve basically what it does it flattens that very sharp uh, inverted v or u curve and it makes it more of a You know, if you look at the area under the curve, it's basically the same. So, you have a million patients in one and a million patients in the other. The only thing you're doing is you're spreading out the million cases over six months versus a month. So, that's what is being now uh, called flattening of the curve. Another concept, which is what I think you're referring to, is to interrupt transmission, really resolve the issue. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, which I mean, is which helpful. is what you want to
3: do, by the way.
2: Right. You know? But I mean, for me, mm-hmm. I have no shot at resolving at resolving this. Like, guys, like you, have to figure that out. I'm just got to stop. I like the only thing I can be responsible for is not giving it to somebody
3: else. If I get sick, but but that's a big responsibility. Yeah, believe me. Um yeah. and it's it's good that you say that but it's it's yes it's an enormous responsibility but it's not your I mean at an individual level nothing is significant but if you multiply what you do times a million or 10 or 100 million that's where the impact is obviously
2: right and so we would hope people who don't feel well get checked out and certainly if you have this either stay in your house or go to a hospital.
3: Exactly. But
2: I I, I also wonder, like, you know, it'd be wonderful if somebody found a cure, right? If they figure out some kind of a thing that just handles it. That's like, we pray that that happens. Barring that, if we flatten the curve, so the million cases are over the course of a year versus in the next couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. so that The amount of hospital beds and respirators that we have on hand for our normal amounts of people that need them don't get used up in one—in a couple of weeks. Exactly. That's one thing. But then I start to think, is this—is it possible that this becomes something we see seasonally like a flu?
3: Yes, that's exactly what um, the the next comment to your comment was or to your question— we don't really know what's going to happen with this virus. Um, prominent among those is will it wane with summer months? But the next question that is very related is we don't know if it's going to disappear once it decreases or very unlikely, by the way, or but SARS and MERS in essence effectively disappear. So it could disappear. But it's now penetrated to such a large number of people, it would be difficult to propose that it's going to completely disappear. But there's two good things in the horizon if it does not disappear. One is the possibility of creating a vaccine, and there's already some work around that, early work, but it's going to probably happen in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. A vaccine which is not going to eliminate the problem, but similar to the flu, what's going to happen probably is going to help uh, reduce the both the morbidity and the mortality you know? right. Um, but so, then
2: even with that, you wind up with other strains like the flu. Uh,
3: yes, so you mean a, a new yet a new coronavirus right. <laughs> So with this, I mean, does this just keep branching off like a Bug, flu? Bugs do that. Right. So mm-hmm. we're surrounded by billions of bugs, and that's what they do. Right? right? They basically avoid our efforts to control them. Yeah. And that's what all the drug resistance comes from. And it's a long list. It's an enormous problem. And this is just—we're talking viruses. We have drug resistance with bacteria, with TB, which is my disease. of Of um, I research TB. Uh, malaria, the big HIV, all the big problems in microbiology and in yep. infectious diseases.
2: I was just looking at a list of killers. TB is still the biggest. Uh,
3: number one by far. By far, I don't ever hear about TB. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the, and I would love for you to one day, if you have the interest, uh, just do one about TB, which is yeah. obviously a very important disease. Yeah. And, and it's also lung. It's also lungs. And before we have a podcast around TB, I would ask you and anybody you know, and it's an incredible exercise, to ask around just one degree of separation in your families if you know if your mothers and fathers and their mothers and fathers know someone who had TB or they had TB themselves. Right. And you will see if you put the results after. It's quite impressive.
2: Yeah. But, yeah, but that. Kills a lot of people. I've been just looking. I've been obsessed with death stats this past week. What's killing people? Starvation. 25,000 people a day. That's a lot of people. Exactly. But that's not a disease you can catch. That's kind of. Man-made. Seems geographical, right? Man-made. This area, they don't have food, so they starve. We don't seem to be handling it. Seems like a pretty solvable cause of death yes, to me. Exactly. But then as far as disease goes, TB number
3: 1 beats the
2: crap out of all the other
3: ones. Not only that, it has always been number 1. It's right. not only that it's number 1 now, it's always been number 1. If you look at the relative importance of TB in terms of contributing to death, there's no other disease that it's even close to TB. It's right. killed billions of people through history. Right and one of the reasons is it's because of very ancient disease you know there's evidence clear evidence it's been with humans at least for 12,000 years and there's maybe some indirect evidence it's been with us uh, uh 500,000 years my goodness so it's it's in essence co-evolved with us and it has us it, it it's very similar to these viruses we're talking about and that's why i talk about this you know you have to th- you have to think like your enemy yeah. in this case and uh, TB has used humans to survive and to evolve, and the virus probably does something very similar. So you have to be—they're tricky. They're—they're you know, they're intelligent beings. Let's but put it do that you way.
2: think COVID nineteen beats TB this year in
3: terms of death mortality? So, TB kills, on average, it, 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 there's about, right now, there's about 10,000 million people who have TB in the world. 10,000? Uh, sorry, 10 million 10 people. Million. okay. Of which about a million and a half to two million die. Okay. Yeah. You know? But every year, every year. And you multiply that by, uh, now there's actually, um, over the last maybe five years, 10 years, a reduction in the number. But... Um, uh, particularly in, in Western societies, TB is becoming a non-issue. And that's one of the reasons why you haven't heard of it, because it's understood as a foreign disease right. or a disease of um, minorities, of uh, forgotten populations in our countries, you know, homeless. And for years, it was associated with HIV. And now, actually, in the U.S., it's more of a disease of elderly and the theory is that they became infected uh, when they were younger, when there was a lot more transmission of TB, and as they become old and accumulate uh, diseases or start taking medications that lower their immunity, uh, TB in essence reactivates. It goes from a dormant state to an active state. You know, um, mm. that's where most, not all, but most of the cases. Of TB that you see in countries like in the US, obviously that's among the US-born population, and then you have a relatively constant number of uh, foreign-born TB that was that's imported with immigration, obviously. No? So.
2: It doesn't seem like COVID-19 is going to kill more people than TV it would this be
3: year. so it would be an absolute disaster that happens right. um, because it, for you to have half uh, a million and a half two million deaths, you would then need to multiply that death rate by probably by a 100 to understand the number of cases that right. occurred. And so we're talking 150 million, 200 million, which is not impossible. But that would be—that's um, big. That would be a, a calamity. Right. Let's put it that way. That would be almost like an Armageddon type of situation, right. you know. And it's not impossible. It was going there, you know. But the world has reacted in a way that you know you can see it right away. You know, it's 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 very concerned. Yeah. And it's not only the U.S. that is pulling, you know, the alarm. Europe is in a very bad place right now. China was in a very bad place. It seems that it's getting better. You know, Iran is suffering a lot. South Korea, there's a few hot spots in the world, um, and they're all now you know pulling the alarm bell. So, in theory, in theory, there's some hope that because there's been now a clear understanding how this is is you know an exponential threat, there's some reaction to it, and, and in theory, it should. Um, it should wane, but it's going to take a long time still.
2: I know it's brand new. Yes, like it's a couple days that people started to go. Yes, I'm going to buy my stuff from the grocery store and go home, and I'm not going to leave. That's the kind of sense I'm starting to get. Because um, as we talked about, the streets are far less crowded. It's Friday afternoon. Typically, it's the most crowded yes. time of Particularly the week. Particularly if it's raining. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's chaos out yeah. <laughs> there, and it's quiet. Yes. That's good. Like, uh, the thing I start to feel sad about is the human interaction that I enjoy with people is giving somebody a hug, saying hello. I don't like going to concerts and being around crowds, so I'm not missing anything there. But I do like a hearty greeting. How long do you think before we get back to that? Like, that actual normalcy, if if we flatline this— so we're still talking about months and yeah, months and probably, months.
3: Yeah, probably, it, it will depend on how what happens in the next two to six weeks. You know? Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, I, 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 I share your view. I'm uh, more of a touchy-touchy person. And I think that's a invaluable part of life. Um, and um, Latin countries have that in a very strong way. And they're going to suffer if they need to. Frankly, they're going to suffer, and they're suffering probably if they really need to curb that. Um, I, I mean, that's almost a philosophical question. And I, I said philosophy is close to uh, yeah. infectious diseases. I think it's very important to maintain a human touch uh, in everything, and including this disease, obviously. Yeah. If nothing else, because, you know, people need your help and, and, you know, family members and older people who are you not know, doing well and so on. You know? Yeah. So yes, that part is, is, is vital. Yeah. You know? So the next two to six weeks are, are the,
2: are, are when we'll kind of
3: know what direction we're heading in. Yeah, probably. Yes. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm being a little optimistic, uh, but you know, let's say in the next three months, uh, we're going to see where the direction of the epidemic is going. Um, Again, there's two parts. One is the flattening of the curve, you know, sort of like distributing numbers through time. And the other is actually interrupting transmission. And that's where, you know, the, the, the graph really starts going down as opposed to continuing to grow in terms of the number of cases, you know. Right. And that's the one I'm talking about. Uh, the number of cases that are going to occur is somewhat established, you know. Uh, you need to avoid new cases, and then try and and manage whatever number of cases is coming to us. Uh, the number of cases I'm talking about is is the serious cases, you no? Know, because infections are going to be many, but how many severe patients requiring intensive care? And that's that that is what has the potential to to destabilize systems, health systems, obviously. Right.
0: Well, from a point of view of reassuring people, would it be safe to say that there are experts such as yourself working on, you know, researching more about this, understanding it, what it is, how it's being transmitted, but also, you know, you touched on vaccines. Um and someone, you know, I would assume Mm -hmm. that we're working on globally vaccines Or treatments, if we're thinking about the flu. Last time I had the flu, I was offered a couple of different medicines to help, you know, shrink the effects or uh, curb the effects, rather. So could that be something we could say to reassure the general public? There are experts at work trying to figure out not only what's happening with this and what is it, but how to help it.
3: Yes. I mean, the answer is yes. There's a lot of people, a lot of money being invested, a lot of effort. It's displaced probably a lot of other priorities, um, funding uh, research-wise. So it's very expected that there's going to be vaccines, there's going to be treatments. There's a particular treatment. There's a drug that is now being used as, it's called compassionate use. It had been developed uh, to treat Ebola, which is another big scare that just happened a year ago or two years ago. It didn't work for Ebola, and now it's been repurposed for coronavirus, and it seems to have some effect. So, is Ebola viral? Yes, Ebola is a virus also. It's a completely different virus, but it's right. one of the hemorrhagic uh, viruses. I, that, was, that was a very scary disease, and it still is. It's still very prevalent in Africa, for example, and that's, that's even more scary than than coronavirus because of the rate of transmission it's it's easily transmissible and more importantly it's about eighty percent fatal Oof. not two percent but eighty percent eighty percent yeah it depends which one there's been several micro epidemics uh, that have been contained but you know fifty to eighty percent mortality and it's a very um I don't want to talk about gruesome things, but it's a very dire mortality. It's a hemorrhagic fever, right? right. So,
2: the other great mystery here is is the fact that we can all communicate so easily. Mm-hmm. And so, I receive text messages from people like, "Here's what I've heard." And and at one point, it was there's a one of the drugs for malaria is is a good prophylactic for this. Go get it from your doctor. And I'm like, well, that was the bad one that gives you nightmares every night. I don't really want to take that. And and I'm hearing from some random dude that's not a doctor who says that's a good thing to take. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So there's all this, I don't know if it's misinformation or what, but the common sense things seem to stay the same. Don't touch your face. Wash your hands a lot. Don't be around sick people. If you're sick, withdraw from people.
3: I have a very strong opinion on what you just said, Um, and you're correct. There's a lot of misinformation. Sometimes that misinformation is on purpose. Sometimes it's just out of ignorance. Particularly when that misinformation relates to doing something like taking a medication, I would be very, very careful. Yeah. I would refer to CDC and NIH guidelines and your local health uh, people. I would not experiment. You don't want to become a guinea pig for anything uh, other than within a controlled, serious trial— that is ethically approved and that is performed by people who know what they're doing. Uh, there's a lot of this talk about this and the other, and you know, and and I would strongly discourage you, <laughs> particularly when it takes when it when it, it refers to doing something, putting a vaccine, doing a vaccine, self injecting yourself something, taking a medication. Uh, stop taking a medication that is important for you. You know, there's a long list of things. Yeah, I've seen all these texts where it's like, it doesn't give
2: even the person's name, who's, who's wherever it's originated from. It just has this list, and I'm like, at the end of it, like, how can I trust this? No, no, you should, you shouldn't.
0: No, and you said something many times now, which is common sense. Yeah. Right. So the CDC, I assume, is. Probably one of the more reliable sources of where we can.
1: No,
3: probably for sure it is yes. the yeah. source. Yeah, so, yeah because yeah. I
0: think that's important for people to know as well as where do you get your information? Because you can go on CNN, you can go here, you can go there, and I'm getting. I'm also getting those. I got a whole. 2 Page something yesterday from a friend. I'm like, there's yeah. no name on it, and then I'm supposed to drink hot liquid. Or, hot you know, liquid. I read it's one kind like of like, that. Yeah. maybe, but I don't know. You know, so
2: hot liquid will kill COVID 19,
0: right? It know. seems, uh, if it was that easy, I'm saying I read that, yeah. right? If it were that easy, I feel like we wouldn't be in exactly. this conversation. So, CDC is the place to go for the most.
3: CDC and IH, those are okay. two. I mean, in local health, sure. uh, they're the extension of what they are. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have to. There's, you know, in these um, moments, there's a lot of necessity for information. A lot of people are very anxious and and they're looking for information and potentially trying to do things to change things. And that's a natural instinct. Um, But in the same way that you don't want to do something... um, misinformed in any other aspect of life you don't want to do it for your for your health or the health of other people and there's a growing amount of information related to this virus but it's taking time to accumulate and to disseminate and what that information is available it will be published and disseminated and but it seems that the
2: the 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 information of if you don't feel good, stay away
3: from people and wash your hands. That's not going to change. That's not going to change. The basic things, and that's why it goes back to common sense, the basic things that we already know will not change, meaning you have to stay healthy in general. You know, One of the first things that I can, I always like to talk about that. If there's a single intervention you can do to improve your health, and it would immensely improve your chances of surviving coronavirus, by the way, is, for example, stop smoking. Right. Okay? So, if th- if there's one thing you can do. In addition to that, obviously, eat well, whatever that means, and it's a big question. <laughs> True, a big, that is a big question. But, you know, but in, in general terms, we know what that means. Yeah. In general terms. it's uh, There's a lot of <laughs> discussion that is a bit of air, But eating well is eating a bit of everything, you know, with moderation, obviously. Maintaining well hydrated during these times, it's very, very important. These are relatively simple things. Washing your hands. Um, You know, the typical things that you hear in, actually your grandmother would tell you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And those things are incredibly important. Forget the last medication, uh, the last antiviral or the next vaccine. Just the big, you have to you have to build upon the, the basics, and the basics are or should be very well known to all of us.
2: Right? right. Right now, the major worry is ability to deal with patients. That's
3: the biggest worry, right, that people are seeing? I mean, that's the the macro worry. Uh, the micro worry is more that, you know, this thing can continue causing a lot of people— there are several levels of worry. One is that one, but at a, at a level of systems, right? You no, know, it can really crash the system, yeah, or make a situation. In Italy, for example, I and I lived this my, myself. I, I worked uh, many years ago with doctors without borders in Africa. We had to triage decisions. We had we had to decide. Okay, so who come? There were so many people, and so, there were so sick coming in through the door. You needed to upfront decide. You know, I'm going to put in some effort, time, because you have, you just have X amount of things to do, and you have ten, let's say, and you have a hundred options. You have to choose where you apply those ten. You know? Yeah. So it's about deciding things uh, based on a relatively simple, but cruel. You know, decision which is triage. You know, who's the most easily treatable? Basically, who's the most likely to benefit from the limited information, uh, limited resources I have. Basically, right. that's the equation here. Yeah, uh, if you have a thirty-five-year-old a mother of two that comes in and is requires a ventilator, and then another an eighty-two-year-old, you know, with diabetes and who requires uh, dialysis and unfortunately the likelihood of he or she surviving is close to zero and and she is um, more likely than not to survive. You know, it's, that's a relatively, it's a very difficult uh, decision at one level, but at at another level is, is something that, you know, makes sense. Right. And those are the concerns that, for example, in Italy, this is not science fiction. They need, they're, as we speak, Deciding these things, they need to be. They're triaging people based on relatively non-scientific criteria, you know. And this is an extreme example of what I'm telling you, but this is probably what's happening already. And that's the that's the fear here, and that right. you are put in a situation where there's so many that need intensive care. We're talking about intensive care, and and, and actually that's uh, interesting also because. Intensive care is almost like a extending life in a super, somewhat superficial way. You know, so you're in essence respi- a respirator is helping you maintain your oxygenation when, without the respirator, you would not be able to breathe, thus be alive. You know, and it's really a relatively short uh, period that you can use it. You know, some people are in a respirator for many, many months. But if after let's say a month or two or three you can't breathe on your own, you know, it's still, you know, there's there's a there's there's a time limit to how much you can maintain someone alive in an ethical way, you know, without the person suffering and so on and so on. Yeah. We're talking about some very complicated issues here, but there is a reality to people who become very, very ill and you have, you know, hundreds, if not Thousands of very ill people. How do you deal with that? It's very, very difficult.
2: Yeah, I, I the the breakdown in systems that you talk about, we can already see them breaking down where you have an arena that guarantees a lot of people work is now out of business. Those people are out of business. That will be a domino effect. Yes. So the shorter the amount of time that we can level it out, the quicker back to starting up the system again, we yes. will be.
3: Yes, yeah, you're right. So uh, I, I, when I made when I the comment I made is about medical systems, you know? yeah. But uh, obviously, this is having incredible impact at many, many different levels, So uh, economic wise. Obviously, uh, look at the the stock market as a marker of a larger problem. No? So, yeah, I mean, health issues are at the center of our existence, and it has an impact on on us you know, at many, many different levels.
2: Yeah, it used to be famine could interrupt our lives, you know, the herd of buffalo decides to go way far away, and we can't find them anymore, or some version of that, and now it's a superbug that we've never seen before, and, and we have to deal with it, and there's certain ways of dealing with it. but. Maybe in a few weeks, if you're not overwhelmed with work, hopefully I'm touch wood, we'll mm-hmm. come back and we'll re-examine this. Sure. And and you know,
0: yeah, obviously see where it's, we are and in the process.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. Those longitudinal assessments are very interesting and necessary. Yeah.
2: yeah. Thank you very much.
3: You're welcome. Really appreciate it. And I let's, appreciate it. I would love to
2: do a TB episode.
3: Whenever you want, that's very close to my heart. So if I have a lot to say about this, I'll have uh, 10 times more to say about TV. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to American Glutton. If you have a
2: question, you can submit it to americanglutton.net. Seth writes in, Dieting while exercising or dropping weight first, then exercising. A lot of people say I should lose my fat first, then exercise. I enjoy exercising, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel the effects of trying to move around a 400-pound body in HIIT workouts. HIIT would be high-intensity interval training. Thanks for the question, Seth. 400 pounds. I don't know what your physical capabilities are at 400 pounds, but... I know when I was 400 pounds, I could certainly do some exercise. I don't know if I was up to doing hit exercises. When I was 500 pounds, I did not exercise a lot. I, I was more focused on losing some fat. Um, but then by the time I was 400 pounds, I could do some exercise. I don't know that I would recommend hit at that weight. You could even just be taking walks or lifting some weights. Um, but... I don't know that I would have been doing something as intensive as hit stuff. So my recommendation to you is not to not exercise. It is to do both, but you know, you want to be wary of things like your knees and your ankles and stuff like that at higher weights. So you could ride an exercise bike you know, lifting weights shouldn't be a problem and continue to lose weight. Now, if you want to do something radical and and drop a bunch of weight first, totally fine. But I think that the effects of exercise are super beneficial. So I would not recommend not exercising. Thanks for your question, Seth. Thanks for the question, Seth. If you have a question you'd like read on the podcast, you can submit it to americanglutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.
1: Hold up.